Welcome, Welcome to the Author Factor Podcast, the show for profitable insights and tips with business owners, entrepreneurs, and CEOs who use their nonfiction book to create the ultimate competitive advantage and grow their business. Grow their business. Grow their business. Here's your host, Amazon best-selling author and book publishing coach, Mike Capuzzi. Welcome to another profitable episode of the Author Factor Podcast. I'm Mike Capuzzi, and I want to thank you for joining us. My guest today is Britt Lefko. Britt is one of the top business and personal development coaches in her field. For over 20 years, she has used a neuroscientific approach to help clients achieve unprecedented growth and create deep fulfillment. I invited Britt on today to discuss how to get past any mental blocks that may be preventing you from writing your first or next book. Britt, welcome to the Author Factor Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. It's a little bit different because you have yet to write your first book. Um, yeah. I'm sure there's one somewhere in your future. I know your dad, is a, your father was a well-known author. Uh, I just I mentioned, I just bought his book this morning, as a matter of fact. But I know from our conversations that we've had in the past, and, and you and I met through a mutual friend, you have this tremendous ability to help people get unstuck and move forward. So I thought it would be helpful because one of the most common questions we get when we're talking to a publishing prospect, because we help corporate leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs publish short nonfiction books, there's a lot of head trash. I'm sure that doesn't come as any surprise, right? I'm not smart enough. I never, you know, I'm not the world's best writer. Who am I to write a book? You know, you know, it's, you know that common sort of thread. And I always talk people, not everybody, but a lot of folks sort of off the bridge, you know, like, no, if you're helping people, you should have a book. So I'd really like to focus our conversation today on the person who's listening, who has yet to write that first book, or maybe they did do a book, but they haven't written one, and they really ought to write that next one, but there's something keeping them stuck. So we're going to keep it free form, but, but before we get into that, why don't you share a bit more about your background? It's pretty impressive. And, and tell our listeners, you know, who you serve and how you serve them. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just so excited about this question because there is such an impact, right? It's like we have such great ideas. And like you said, if there's head trash and we're blocked, so often those ideas stay hidden within ourselves. So I think it's such an important question. Um, a little bit about my background. So I work with like you said, high achieving entrepreneurs, I do corporate work, but my focus is really on where are the places where we get in our own way, right? Where are the places where the business is personal and our procrastination is a latent fear of failure or us not putting our ideas out there are, like you said, feelings of I'm not smart enough or I'm not good enough, or if I make a mistake or fail, I'll be humiliated. And so what is so meaningful for me is looking at business as a vehicle. It's an, an ability that we have to put ourselves out there into the world and make an impact, do something that we love, be creative, feel successful, provide for our families. So business is a really incredible tool. And what I find is, right, I, I love the quote so much that people don't have business problems. <laughs> Businesses have people problems. And, <laughs> and, you know, what I find time and time again is, it, it isn't that we have business problems. It isn't that we have writing problems. It isn't that we have book problems. 
Hence, we have internal problems and those prevent us from being able to do in so many ways what we already know how to do. And there's not a shortage of good advice. There's not a shortage of resources. And so it's, you know, it's like once we sign up, how do we actually take the great advice and do what we know we should do? And so that is what I do with my one-on-one clients. Like I said, with my, my corporate work, I do workshops and, and keynotes on, on this. So that's what I'm here to talk about today. Very good. Now, Britt, I would assume that this, and I don't, I don't know what the term you want to use. I'll call it head trash, but that probably makes you it's cringe. Great. No, no head, trash, okay. head trash is great. All head right, trash let's call great. it head yeah. trash then. I mean, we all suffer from it, right? But I would, I would yeah. imagine, and I would like your input here, that no matter how successful you are on this end or how maybe not yet successful you are on this end, everybody has some level of head trash. There's nobody. I mean, you may think there's someone on TV that's got their act together, but you know, am I correct in that assumption? You are, you're beyond correct. And what I often find is the more successful you become, the more your head trash feels like this heavy burden of who I am. I work with people who have made, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars who are terrified that money doesn't last and money is scarce and hard to get. And they're just waiting for the money to disappear. I've worked with people who, you know, lead, you know, teams of hundreds or thousands of people and feel like I'm an imposter or I'm not good enough. And it's like, they're just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, or they feel like it was luck, or they feel like, again, it's going to disappear. And being successful does not change your head trash. And one of the reasons why is because your understanding of the events around you has nothing to do in, in, and I'll explain this a little bit more, but we don't see things as they are, right? We don't see the world clearly. We see it through our own eyes. And so we see the world through our beliefs. And if we have beliefs about who we are or the way things are, we see everything as evidence of that. Our brain actually doesn't register. It doesn't acknowledge information that disagrees with our beliefs. And so that creates a huge problem because we will have all of these successes and our brain will go, yeah, but yeah, but you know, oh, someone else helped you with that. Or you got lucky on that one or the market changed in that particular case. And so we don't actually look for evidence of how we want to feel. We look for evidence of how we already feel. And that's one of the reasons why no matter how successful you are, it doesn't change your beliefs, which is a bummer because you get people who are taught early in life. If I do all the right things, I'm going to feel good about myself, right? You feel a little bit insecure when you're, you know, 10, 12 years old, and you learn that if you're successful and you have a big business that, you know, you write a great book that all of a sudden that's going to change how you feel. And when it doesn't, it's really disappointing and it can create feelings of, discontent or upset or a feeling of it's not fair because you've done everything right, but it isn't the external that changes the internal. You have to change the internal with the internal. So again, just to set up the context of what we're going to be discussing and focusing a little bit more, I would also, so we now know we all suffer from some level of it. I would also venture to guess that it is not sort of a one and done thing, right? You just don't work on it for, oh, I've got this issue. I'm going to work on it. Oh, Brit, help me. I'm done. I'm good forever, right? I, I would assume it kind of is throughout life, like whether it's different chapters in your life or different things going on, right? I mean, maintaining a healthy mindset and getting keeping that head trash to a minimum, is it a one and done thing? 
I would say yes and no. Mm. So once you realize that what you thought was true isn't true, it kind of disappears. It almost kind of feels ridiculous. The example I think of is Santa Claus, right? It's like, once you realize that Santa isn't real, the idea that a guy would fit through the chimney, right? And be able to you know, give presents to every kid in the world in one night, you're like, wow, that is ridiculous. That's how our beliefs are, right? The idea that mistakes and failures mean something about us is is equally ridiculous to Santa. The idea that we're not good enough or that, you know, we can't write a book because we're not smart enough, that's ridiculous, right? And you know that so well, especially with books, that there are so many ways to help somebody be successful, right? There are so many ways to get your ideas out there. And the idea that you need to be a particular way or you need to be the best writer in the world or you, that intelligence is kind of a finite scale that you kind of check a box and then you're smart or not smart. Intelligence is contextual, right? Intelligence is an incredibly contextual asset. And so these beliefs are just as ridiculous as Santa. But if I believe Santa's real, I'm not going to question, you know, the details of him fitting through the chimney. I'm just going to accept it as real. And I'm going to think, feel, and behave as though that's real. I'll get excited, you know, on Christmas morning and I'll put out milk and cookies. And it's the same thing, right? We think, feel, and behave consistently with our beliefs. So the, the no part of the answer is once you realize that the thing that you have thought was true isn't true, it goes away. And so from that perspective, it's one and done. Where I think it's not one and done is there's complexity to the human mind. And so there's a lot of different beliefs, right? You don't just want to shift one belief. And what you find is when you shift one belief, you still have all of these other clusters of beliefs that are in the way. So it's about kind of working through all the different pieces. And there are certain beliefs that only emerge when you're in a transition, right? Sometimes there are particular limiting beliefs you have that are like a glass ceiling. So in a certain, you know, kind of place in your life, you don't even hit up against those beliefs. But then when you have kids or you hit 10 million or it's time to write a book, all of a sudden these beliefs you didn't even know you had will start to surface. So I think it's a lifelong journey of always looking at what beliefs are limiting me at this moment in my life. And the good news is once you really shift them, they're gone. Wow. So I just had an idea for you. I yeah. think uh, whether it's an article or maybe it's one of your future books, like a book title that says a book title of Santa's not real. And then using that as, cause it's a great metaphor. It is a yeah. great metaphor. As soon as yeah. you said that, it instantly connected with me like, wow, I get like, it's just so easy yeah. for most of us, not everybody, because not everyone grew up with Santa, but it's yeah. a great metaphor. So nice job there. Thank you. All right, Britt. So let's, let's focus now for the person who's listening. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of background and then I'm going to shut up for pretty much the rest of the uh, uh, episode here. Oftentimes when I'm talking to someone I, and I, I sense this, you know, head trash, I, I, you, this is my simple example of saying, hey, here's how to sort of redirect. And I say, listen, you're, right now you're shining that spotlight on you. You're, you don't have the experience. You've never written a book. You, know, you didn't do great in English in high school, whatever. And I say, you know, books have such a profound way to help people. And 99 times out of 100, you will never know who they help because most people don't typically write in or leave a review or, that or whatever. But if it's not out there, it's not going to help anybody. So I, I always say, listen, turn that, that spotlight not on you, but onto the people that are waiting for your book, that need your book, mm. and 
they're not going to get the help that you can give them if it never is created, or they'll find it from somebody else. So I just try to use that metaphor of like trying to turn that spotlight off of you and put it on the person who really could benefit from your book. So I'd like you to share, if you wouldn't mind, just some strategies. Again, if you can put in your mind, hey, there's men and women listening to this that either yet to write that first book or they, they did one years ago and they've just been stuck doing that next one, which in today's age, there's probably a good reason to have that next book. Um, what words of encouragement or advice would you share? Yeah, I and I love what you said about shifting the spotlight because I think it's it's so accurate, right? We get so stuck on how we're viewing ourselves that we forget that nobody is thinking about us. They're thinking about themselves, right? They're, that's that's very, you know, very true. So I love that. So I, I want to talk, just give some like really, really basic neuroscience. And I'm going to use that to, to talk about the words of encouragement I would use. So when we experience fear, this could be mild anxiety to abject terror, any fear. There's a trigger in our brain that is saying there's a threat to your survival. So fear comes from a perceived threat to your survival. Now there's a big difference between an actual threat to your survival and a perceived threat to your survival. So fear doesn't tell you about danger. What it tells you about is the things that you have labeled early in your life as unsafe. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of lay this out a little bit between the ages of zero to seven, we're trying to figure out this new place that we've brought into, right? You're new in town. You've never been here before. You're trying to figure out what's safe and unsafe, but you're in a very unique environment because your survival doesn't actually depend upon yourself. It depends upon your primary caregivers, right? Typically your parents, the things that create a feeling of harmony, in your family from zero to seven, make you feel safe. And the things that create a feeling of disharmony in your family from zero to seven, your brain will label as unsafe, not because they're dangerous, but because they are perceived as dangerous when your survival depends upon someone else. Now, here's the challenge. Your brain doesn't upgrade. So if my zero to seven, I had parents who were really uncomfortable with conflict my brain will label conflict as unsafe. And at, when I'm 49 years old, if there's conflict, I'll feel fear. Not because there's an actual threat to my survival, but because of a perceived threat to my survival. So why is this relevant? This is relevant because typically the thing that stops us from writing is fear. A fear of looking stupid, a fear of not knowing you know, a, a certain answer, a fear of not being a good writer, a fear of being judged, a fear of being criticized, a fear of you know, making a mistake. So the fear says nothing about danger, but we still process it as danger. So a tool that is so helpful, I cannot tell you how powerful this is, is to help your brain label fear differently. So I'm gonna give you an example. I'm sitting down to write and I feel fear. This is what I get to say to myself. Oh, Brett, your brain thinks you're unsafe. That's cute. That's what fear is. Your brain thinks you're unsafe. I'm not unsafe. I'm just outside of my comfort zone. If I'm feeling fear, I'm likely to shut down. I'm likely to procrastinate. I'm likely to feel small. But if I can reframe my fear to tell myself that I'm actually just outside of my comfort zone, well, if I'm somebody who values doing things outside of my comfort zone, it will completely change my mindset. Being out of my comfort zone is something I can overcome. I've been outside of my comfort zone a million times in my life. And here I am. So the feeling of unsafe creates a pullback. 
And the feeling of stepping outside of your comfort zone can be motivating. It can be inspiring. So something that I would encourage people to do is really start to shift from fear to outside of your comfort zone. It will change your sense of your identity. It will change how you relate to this book that you're going to write. It will change how you expect even just what you focus on, right? If I'm focusing on people aren't going to like me, they're going to criticize me, they're going to think I'm stupid, right? That entire focus will determine my experience of writing the book. It's going to be a drudge, right? It's like, oh, this is hard. I don't want to. But if my book is me taking a stand for, I'm just going to do something outside of my comfort zone, I'm going to be focused on a completely different experience. So I think one of the words of encouragement, and just to kind of go a little bit deeper in this is, what is making it hard is not that writing a book is hard. What's making it hard is your fear. Your biggest kind of your biggest challenge is managing fear. And so instead of saying writing a book is really hard, if you say managing my fear has felt really hard, writing a book is just writing. I already know the topic, right? I'm already an expert in this. Writing a book is not hard. Writing a book is just me getting my ideas out on paper. And at some point I'll edit them and you know, do some rewrites. Like that's not scary. That's not hard. What is scary is that my brain thinks I'm unsafe. My brain thinks if someone doesn't like my book, that I'm unsafe because from zero to seven, that created disharmony in my family. And so my brain just thinks I'm unsafe, but I'm not unsafe writing a book. If I'm, if I'm writing a book to a bunch of tigers where when the book is published, right, they get let out of the cage. Sure. Yeah. Okay. That fear makes sense. But if there are no tigers and I'm writing to a bunch of humans and there is actually no threat to my survival, being criticized or judged is not actually dangerous. And if I'm criticized or judged, and that's just outside of my comfort zone, I can manage that. So the thing that I think is most helpful in getting this book onto paper and getting it out into the world is realizing that if one person criticizes you, your survival doesn't depend upon them. If one person judges you, your survival doesn't depend upon them. Your survival depends upon you. And given that your survival depends upon you, it is up to you to create the life that you want to have. It is up to you to do the things that you want to do. So it's a very empowering mind shift when you get, right? This is not dangerous. It's just uncomfortable. I've been uncomfortable a million times before. Do I want to be stopped by discomfort, right? Do I want to be on my deathbed and look back and be like, yeah, I really didn't do anything that was uncomfortable. And I lived really small and I never fulfilled any of my dreams. And I, I never did anything I was proud of. Or do I want to be someone who said, yeah, I was, it was really uncomfortable. It was really uncomfortable writing that book, but I'm someone who steps outside of my comfort zone and I can, I can manage. So what you'll notice is when you shift from fear to discomfort, your fear will start to subside. You'll regain access to the part of your brain that is motivated. You'll regain access to the part of your brain that has great ideas. You'll regain access to the part of your brain that is responsible for complex problem solving and for creativity and for innovation. When you are in a state of fear, you actually lose access to your prefrontal cortex. And that is the part of your brain that you need to write. So it makes sense that it's been hard for you because the part of your brain that you need to write the book goes offline when you become afraid. So managing fear allows us to regain the part of the brain that we need to do our best work. Wow. Very profound. A lot to unpack there. And uh, I think that little strategy, if you will, uh, that you shared, could, yeah, if someone is listening, could just try that and, and, and put that into action. It could really have a profound effect. Britt, 
something came to mind as you were sharing that. I, I was just talking to a, a prospect the other day, and it was, he brought up something very interesting. And, and his hesitancy, so I just, I'm just i going to ask just for your kind of input on this. Yeah. His hesitancy was because his topic is a topic that's very, it's out there already. And a lot of people have bought into the topic but have not been successful. So he doesn't want to do it because he doesn't want to have more unsuccessful people. And I try just on a quick call, I was saying, um, let's just say his name is Greg. I said, Greg, shift that focus again. Like, why are you focusing on the few people that may not be able to get anywhere? Again, there's people that will benefit, that will improve their life, will improve their business. But he automatically, by default, went over here to where, yeah. oh, people, you know, I, I can't do this because other people have been unsuccessful and I don't want to add to that pile of unsuccessful people. I don't know if that makes sense, but it was a very, it, it was a profound conversation. And I think I got him to see the light. He was like, wow, mm-hmm. but is there something in us or is it, you know, why do people yeah. sometimes go right there? Yeah. So I, I want to talk about the kind of pattern recognition engine in our brain, right? I talked about earlier that if you believe something to be true, you just look at the world as evidence, right? If if I believe that people can't be trusted, I might have, you know, five best friends that are incredibly trustworthy. I might have coworkers or employees who are incredibly trustworthy, but I'm going to focus on the one person who, the one person in the news, my, you know, sister's mom's cousin who stole money. I'm going to focus on, right, the one guy who had an employee who was, you know, whatever. That's what my brain is going to register. So if I believe that what makes me good enough is kind of being the best and I'm trying to be the best and to be the best. And I fall short of being the best. I'm going to be left with this feeling of I'm not good enough. So when it's time to write a book, my perspective is going to be, I'm not good enough. And so if someone else couldn't do it, well, I mean, why would I be able to do it? Other people are better than me. Other people are smarter than me. So what we're not looking for is the evidence that we're going to be different. The evidence of, wait, I I have something valuable. And if other people haven't done it, maybe my unique perspective will be what it takes. Maybe what people need is not the smartest person in the world. Maybe they need someone relatable, right? Maybe they need somebody who's been through their problems and can understand, right? I don't do this work because I never had a negative belief. My mindset was fantastic. And I went through life, right? Dancing in rainbows. I had the worst mindset of anybody I've ever met. I've had to overcome that. So when people tell me, yeah, but you know, I have a lot of shame around this. I'm like, I know shame. I get it. That makes sense to me, right? If someone's like, yeah, well, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I had a really critical father and I felt not good enough and I, you know, felt stupid. I'm like, I I know those feelings. So I think that for a lot of people, it's like, well, if I'm not the smartest person in the world, my expectation is, what I do is not going to be good enough. What I do is not going to make a difference, but that's just us patterning to how we felt in the past and then projecting it onto the future. So one of the most, again, one of the, one of these important shifts is getting, we often think that what people want is the smartest or the best. We don't want the smartest or the best. Typically the smartest people cannot explain their brilliance. Typically the smartest people are actually the hardest to learn from. Often it's the people who know just a little bit more than us that really actually help us to make the biggest shifts. So taking this perspective that 
oh, because of my insecurity around this, because of my feeling that, you know, I'm not good enough, I'm trying to prove that I'm the smartest or the best. Well, now I've just shot myself in the foot because the chances that I can prove to myself I'm going to be the smartest or the best are pretty low. But me being able to say, you know, if I know just a little bit more about this, I'm going to be relatable. And if I can explain it in a way that I feel like people can really absorb or integrate, that's really where I could make the biggest difference, right? So I think it's it's starting to shift the perspective around what we think people want. And I think that really empowers us to get, we don't have to be, you know, we don't need to be Einstein. So Britt, as we get ready to wrap up here, if you could just briefly describe, because someone might be listening, hopefully more than someone, that, you know, they are intrigued, you know, by what you shared. What does it look like to work with you? Or, you know, can you just share a little bit of how you work with clients and what opportunities you have? Yeah. So what I really focus on with clients are what are the places, where are the places where the I'm not good enough or that's not possible or that's for other people, but not for me or the I'm not smart enough are getting in your way. So I help people to identify and shift those belief systems and shift their identities around it, right? If you've spent your whole life with a feeling of other people are smarter than me, or I'm not credible enough, or you have to, you know, have already made a lot of money for people to listen to you, whatever those limiting beliefs are that feel like facts that are not in fact facts, right? But that are really getting in the way of us showing up in the ways that we want to in our businesses or in our lives. So I help people to identify and shift those beliefs and those identities and those perspectives that have kept them stuck. So um, my one-on-one clients really are kind of my heart. I, like I said, I do corporate work and I do other work, but my one-on-one clients really are my, are my heart. And I, and I love seeing what's possible when those beliefs aren't in the way. So that's really what I focus on with my one-on-ones. Very good. So Britt, this has been, I knew it'd be an amazing conversation and I know we just barely touched the surface, but if somebody is listening who wants more from you, wants to learn more about you, what, what is, where's the best place to, to go learn more about you? Yeah. So I would go to my website, BrittLefko.com. Um, I'm sure it'll be in the show notes, but B-R-I-T-T-L-E-F-K-O-E, BrittLefko.com. And I have a free um, thing you can download. It's about overcoming your fear of failure. So it's a, a really great worksheet guide to start to address some of these fears, some of these questions that might be surfacing. So that would be a really great way to start. So I encourage people to download the free um, Overcome Your Fear Failure Guide. Um, if you are interested in one-on-one coaching, you can go ahead and book a call. I have a couple more slots left. Um, so yeah, feel free to book a call if you're interested in one-on-one coaching. And yeah, I would love to hear from you. Very good. Well, Britt, thank you very much. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And to my listeners, thank you. And if you found this podcast helpful, please help me grow by sharing with your network and leaving a review on Apple Podcast. Till next time, this is Mike Capuzzi. Thank you for listening to the Author Factor Podcast. To learn more about Mike's unique short book publishing opportunities, please visit bitesizedbooks.com.